0: Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers' Festival. This session, Far From Home, was recorded at the 2019 festival and was supposed
1: to include Saba Vasefi and Con Karapani Yatidis. Unfortunately, Saba was unable to make it. Con shares his perspective and experiences of the global refugee crisis and your host is Felicity Biggins.
0: Yes, I was going to say we have two exceptional guests today but so far we've only got one. But he's super exceptional. Um, Con (laughs) – I'm going to have a go at this, Con. Con Karapana Giatiatis. You say it in the proper way. Uh,
1: Con Karapana Giotiatis.
0: That's better. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We just call him Con. Con is one of those sorts of people who makes you question all your life choices. He's dedicated his life to helping others, uh, particularly those who come to Australia seeking asylum from really appalling situations in their countries of birth. And our session this morning is called Far From Home. So Conn's written this book, The Power of Hope, or How Community, Love and Compassion Can Change Our World. And it's his story of founding the Asylum Seekers Resource Centre in Melbourne. And uh, it's a sort of book you pick it up and you kind of go, oh, bit of your heart sinks to be honest because you think this is going to be a very worthy book I fear me but it's quite the reverse it's a roller coaster and I don't quite know where you how you'd quite describe it Uh, part full disclosure memoir very open and honest part sort of Anthony Robbins-esque life improvement sort of self-help (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's not, they're, they're like, <laughs> like well, I won't make you walk on coal, I yeah, promise.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you won't go and hug everyone inappropriately. No, of course not. Um, part sort of uh, call to arms and part um, how-to guide for be, being an activist, which I'm sure is um, what Con would consider himself. So since the so-called Tampa election of 2001, it's been almost a given that dog whistling on immigration and refugees wins votes. But recently we've seen Michael Daly um, removed as leader of the Labour Party in New South Wales, partly because of his Asians with PhDs remarks. We've seen the Medivac bill become law in spite of fierce resistance from the coalition government. And last night at the opening night uh, of the festival, which was called Speaking Out, Gillian Triggs said that the way people responded to the government's treatment of her uh, for standing up for human rights with kindness and compassion and so many flowers she thought she must have died, (laughs) that's what she said, suggests the Australian people are more compassionate towards refugees and human rights in general than the policies and behaviour of our politicians would lead us to believe. So that's something I'm going to get con to address later this morning, but I want to begin, Con, with your personal story um, and particularly your book, which took me very much by surprise. Why did you write this book?
1: Okay. Um, good morning, everyone. First of all, I'd like to also pay respects to the fact that we gather on the land of First Nations people and pay respects to elders, both past and present, and to emerging leaders. Um, every time I talk about justice for refugees and the fair treatment of refugees. I always say, well, we can't talk about that unless we're also talking about justice for First Nations people. So, I just want to start with that. (laughs) Um, Honestly, why did I write this book? Well, I had no plans of being an author. I am not a writer. And then this wonderful person named Catherine from HarperCollins approached me saying, I think you have a book to write. I think you have a story to tell. And I thought she was joking. She spent about three or four months convincing me to write this book. Um, And in the end, I said yes because I thought maybe I could take all of the sort of struggles and grief and traumas of my life and maybe share them with others, but maybe in a way that could give solace, hope, and nurture resilience in people, that maybe I could make some medicine out of this poison, that I could do something positive with it. Uh, And that's really why I wrote it, hoping that maybe it could make a positive difference in the lives of others and give others hope that all the things we grow up thinking are going to be the, the ruin of us. They, so many of us grow up feeling awkward and unlovable and useless and worthless, which is very much how I felt growing up. And I thought, what if I could send a message to other young people, to people still struggling with the trauma we carry and say, you are enough and no matter what you've suffered through, it doesn't mean you're broken or unlovable or useless. That something beautiful can rise from that. And that there are gifts that come with our struggle, like resilience and empathy and compassion. And that's really why I wrote this book. And what's been kind of really touching has been, for people that have read it, that's been the response I've been getting. People sharing a lot of very confronting stuff with me. But it's also made me feel very grateful because it's telling me that people are turning to it as a way to get through their hard times and finding their little patch of hope as well.
0: Well, it is very frank. Uh, one of your regrets is that you didn't, um, you don't feel you had as good a relationship with your father as you would have liked um, and that you wished you'd done more. So let's go back to the beginning of your, your childhood that you say was full of poison and pain. Uh, where, where did your parents come from?
1: So my parents were, it's a classic migrant story, they came as immigrants from Greece. And like most migrants, they didn't come here by choice. I mean, refugees have it even far higher, as in they're fleeing for their very lives. But they came, like most migrants, expecting one day that they would come back home to their country of origin. Um, they came with poverty. Both my parents hadn't even finished primary school because they both had to work the fields. Uh, they went and became tobacco farmers in a little town called Mount Beauty, near Aubrey Wodonga. And they had a life of incredible hardship. And it was kind of only when I was writing the book did I really start understanding the notion of intergenerational trauma. And that is on the one hand, my parents didn't have the emotional tools to nurture us in the ways that I I, I wished I could have had, like being hugged and touched and feeling loved. But they did the very best they could in quite extraordinary ways, as in they gave up their life, they gave up the dreams, they spent every day working jobs that basically broke their bodies, broke their spirits, and they persisted because they wanted something better for my sister and I and as I was writing the book, I was kind of crying every day while I was writing it, thinking about the grief that my mum and dad carried of what would it would be like to lose your home, lose your future, lose your opportunities, spend your life doing something that gives you no, no sense of worth or, or purpose outside of what you're doing for others, and the harshness in which they grew up in. And my, my father's um, on my father's side, his parents were refugees themselves. And so I just started thinking about I grew up in a traumatized home of traumatized parents who were doing their very best, and then my sister and I were growing up in that trauma as well, so there was both profound extraordinary love and profound extraordinary grief. And when my mum read the book, um, because it's really hard writing this, having lost my father and and how do I not hurt my mother while being honest, my mother was crying while she was talking to me about it, and she's like, I didn't know you were so lonely and you felt so sad and so alone, and I go, Mum. Uh, This book is a book of, uh, you and dad are the heroes in this book. Um, You're not the villains. I I love you both so deeply. You did the best that you could. But I also was lost, and I also was sad, and I also was struggling. uh, And then holding and hugging her and saying, you did all you could. And that's a really hard thing when we grow up with trauma and grief. It either becomes something poisonous that destroys our very sense of worth and self, or we find something beautiful or possible or positive to make of it. But we have to make a choice between a path of bitterness and self-destruction or a path of, you know, there were many times growing up where I wanted to die. You know, I wanted to kill myself. I never got to the point of actually thinking of how to do it, but I really did not want to be here.
0: Was a part of that being Greek? Was a part of that the isolation that your parents faced when they came here?
1: I think we often don't, uh, you know, Joe Williams was talking last night about how People think what's killing indigenous people, the fact that 50% of indigenous men my age are dead in this country. 50% of indigenous men that are my age aren't alive right now. Um, And he was saying people think it's alcohol and drugs and it's actually racism and trauma. And so I think there's an experience that we rarely get to talk about. And this is me as an ethnic man, little if I was an ethnic woman or a woman of color or an indigenous person. Um, that you're growing up in a little country town where you're being called a dirty wog, you're being told to F off back to your own country. So you learn very young what it's like to not belong and what it's like not to be wanted. And racism has an incredibly traumatic impact on your sense of worth because you are always the less than. You are always the inferior. You are always not enough. You are never the ideal. You are never the normal. So when you combine poverty, racism, racism, um, Growing up in a little country town where you're one of only a couple of Greek families, yeah, it's going to be hard. And but it never got easy. Everyone I moved to the city. so yeah, it was hard. And watching my mum and dad, my dad up at 3 a.m., 4 a.m. in the morning. Uh, my dad, you know, my dad was working from the age of nine is when he had to leave school, and he'd work from 3 or 4 in the morning till 10 at night every night. Every night he worked from 9 to 61, and then was dead at 63. Uh, and the cruelty and unfairness of that, it's just, that's one of the things that still eats me up to well, this Well, it's day.
0: kind of ironic that we assume immigrants come to Australia and refugees come to Australia for a better life. And the experience of your parents would imply they didn't find that better life. Or did they for you and your sister?
1: Well, it's, 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 it's kind of this thing. Like, I might take a moment quickly to digress for a second. Can, can you for a moment just stand up if you or your ancestors crossed sea or land and came to this country in search of a better life? Stand up if that's you. Oh. Okay. (laughs) All right. So look around for a moment, and I need you to understand that when you hear me this morning talking about refugees, talking about refugees, yeah, we should stand up. When we're talking about refugees, the story I'm talking about is our collective story. And I want you, you can sit down, and I want you, (laughs) but I want you to think for a moment before I answer your question, I want you to think for a moment how many of your ancestors were actually welcomed when they first arrived and almost none of them were. Almost all of them were told they were going to be a burden, a problem, a threat to this country. And when you think back to your ancestors, do any of you think of them as a burden or as a mistake as Peter Dutton likes to talk about? And how many of you do you think of them as heroes who sacrificed, who gave up everything for you to have a better life? And so on the one hand, my parents did escape poverty, did escape a life of incredible hardship. Uh, We're able to raise two children that were their living legacy, and my sister and I take that very seriously. But this collective story is our story along with our indigenous story, and it's a story we're being constantly told to forget about. It's like we have a prime minister who, for the first time in living memory, is the first prime minister who refuses to use the word multicultural anymore. Have you noticed that? A migrant nation. He won't even use multicultural anymore. It pains him so much to acknowledge what this country actually is because he wants to whitewash it all together. So um, I think every migrant every refugee comes with a mixed journey, one of a, a grief that never actually leaves, of loss of home, contrary to the myth that people are, are just... Everyone, of course, comes for a better life, including refugees. The idea that, no, I'm coming here for a shit life, sign me up. <laughs> no one... You know, like, when did that become a bad thing? When... There's I tell two quick stories. There was a a, a two-year-old boy who came here on a ship on a say, and his father originally came here when he was 16 to escape war wartime Britain, and when the war was over he went back became a dentist and then came here with his two-year-old boy as a 10 pound pom. and that two-year-old boy was who? Tony Abbott. Two parents, Scottish parents, concerned about the climate impacting on their daughter's health, the, 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 the changing climate was impacting on her. And they decided when their daughter was seven that they would come to this country in search of a better life for their daughter. And that girl was Julia Gillard. Now, they both talk of their parents' stories as stories of heroism. And yet the people I work with, refugees who are fleeing the Taliban, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, who are fleeing wars, they are seen as a burden, as a threat, as undeserving. So what's happened here about whose stories matter, whose journeys are okay, um, and what country we have? Uh, so I think it's always heavy because that pressure to assimilate, you know, this idea of, at the moment, speak English. You have Pauline Hansen who can't speak English. Um, <laughs> but this idea, But this idea of constantly looking at separating us, and if we see the tragedy of the Christchurch terror attack, and then all these politicians going, we don't know what radicalized them. But when in, I see people saying, oh, Lebanese immigration was a mistake, Islam is a disease, African gangs are coming, you will not make Australia home, Operation Sovereign Borders, pedophiles are coming as a consequence of the Medivac bill. And then I watch these same people protecting George Pell, yeah? And then I look at the Christchurch and I go, well, this is the seeds we sow of hate and dehumanization are what take seed and radicalize. And I'm hoping moments like this are, the one thing that might come from a tragedy like this is a wake-up call around, it's, it's time we start a new conversation in this country and one that's rooted in values and decency and fairness and compassion because it's sorely missing this country right now, isn't it? Yeah.
0: We, we will come back to those things sure. too, on, but I just wanted to stay a little bit more on your sure. childhood. Sorry. What were some of the positives about being Greek?
1: Uh, I, I'm very, very proudly Greek, and uh, within Greek culture—and this is not unique to Greek culture—but speaking for my own culture, uh, like the word philoxenia, which every culture has a variation of, which is love for the stranger, and the things that I was raised with. You know, whatever my parents lacked in education, they more than made up for in teaching me the importance of family, the importance of community, the importance of respect for your elders, the importance of a work ethic the importance of compassion, the importance of humility and kindness. And like I'm very close. My, my sister's my best friend. I'm very close to my mother. I've, I've been I've grown up around strong women. And I'm really proud of my culture, both its extraordinary history, but its values as it lives today, which is about... Um, and my mum often worries about what I do. and like scared I'm going to get into trouble. Growing up in fascist Greece at the time that she was growing up with. And I say to her mum, just like, you know, you sacrificed and you know, for me and, and Noel and my sister. This community I hope they're my family. I am only living the values you've raised me with, which is to think beyond myself, which is to think about the importance of community, which is to remember the importance of giving back, to be proud of where you come from. So all my life when I've been mocked and stereotyped and caricatured and, and you know, this idea that I'm gonna be some oafish Greek man, the pleasure I get in going, yes, um, the pleasure I get in being able to actually say I'm very proudly working class, I went to a crappy public school, my parents never got to high school, and, and I'm the person that I am, and I'm so deeply proud of it, and we have such a pressure to disown our stories and our cultures and our names, and I really hold on to it so fiercely because this is who I am, and I, and I embrace and I love all of
0: it. I'm feeling a bit shallow now. <laughs> when I was asking about Greek culture, I was just hoping you might talk about the food. <laughs> That's where my I head do, always is. I
1: do love to cook. The but yummy
0: it's, food, the masala. Yeah, and
1: you can, you can go to my Instagram account and see all my beautiful recipes if you want. Mm. But that's but, but, but an interesting one because while food is a really important part of all of our cultures, now the other week I was cooking, we had this beautiful Feast of Freedom and I made dinner for 200 people and it was beautiful. And Cooking with refugees, with Syrian refugees and they were telling their stories. It was magnificent. But our cultures are much more than that. And sometimes it's a case that immigrants and refugees were allowed to be seen as long as we're talking about things that you can consume and you can appropriate or have, but then when we talk about our values or our culture or our politics or our or anything beyond that, we're told to stay back in our box. And so, how do we have a deeper conversation that says actually we want to be represented? It's a it's the same simple thing of um, a simple thing I've had for almost three years. I was talking about before, which is I won't go on a panel unless half the panel is are women. I just won't. And oh well, that's worked out well. Yeah, but but the point I was trying to. Which is, but the point I was trying to get at is about that unless we, we have spaces where, where, where the country we actually have is represented on panels, in, in our halls of parliament, in our universities, the fact there are more CEOs named John than there are women CEOs in this country, like we, we have a serious problem of a lack of representation and a lack of equality. And we keep talking about you know, tougher borders and higher walls rather than longer tables where we can all sit out together as equals. And I think it really matters if we're going to talk about diversity and difference. We're talking about culture, race, sexuality, disability, age. We need to create inclusive spaces. I have having a conversation before with a lovely man named Stuart he was he's doing a talk at the same time now on conversion therapy and how it's still legal in New South Wales, which is banned in Victoria. It's extraordinary that's still legal. So I think what I'm trying to get at is that we, we really integrate cultures of inclusivity and equality, and that means all of us, not just some of us.
0: Yeah. And you, you do also address male illness, and uh, yeah. you know that's also been a very much a thing. Um, but I just wanted to um, go through to the next stage of your yes. life, if that's okay. So you started the Asylum Seeker Resources Centre. You say after being sacked from every paid job you'd ever had.
1: Yeah, being sacked. <laughs> It's true. I've been (laughs) sacked from everything we've ever done.
0: Yeah, and you write about the power of failure.
1: Yeah. I I had a whole chapter on failure because I often get a lot of young people come up to me and go, well, how do I do what you've done? And I go, embrace failure, embrace risk, be fearless. And every time I've been sacked from every job I've had, very quickly, every time it was about an issue of principle and purpose, I got sacked from a homeless shelter because I, I, I stood up and said, um, homeless men shouldn't wait out in the rain while we while they wait to be served dinner. Can't we let them in? Lost my job for that. I got sacked at a university because I stood up for the students with disability. That I was the advocate for. I got sacked for studying the ASRC by the university I was working at at the time. Now all those universities subsequently have made me their alumni of the year. <laughs> um, one of them is giving me an honorary doctorate in laws next month. So, and I say I share this because I go. The the, the important lesson I say to young people is never lose your values and your integrity and your ethics because they're the one thing you can't get back. You can always find another job, but your values are the one thing no one can buy from you and own of you. That's that's your precious little part of you. And if you do the right thing and, and do the thing that is in line with your moral compass and your values, you'll be okay. Even though it's humiliating at the time when you're being sacked, you feel like you're letting down your family and so on, but every time, follow your values and it will take care of you. And at a time now when we look again at our political leaders, do we see value-led leadership anywhere at the moment? We don't. And it's the very thing we're crying out for.
0: You, um, you, you, nothing probably, though, was more embarrassing than your audition for the librarians. Oh, and God. I thought that's an amu- amusing story.
1: Oh, yeah. goodness, yeah. So through the my... The things you've done. I, I've done a lot of humiliating things in my life. <laughs> and one of, to, one of them was to audition for a, a show on the ABC called The Liberians, where they, I used to do stand-up comedy, uh, a show called The Hateful Humanitarian. And, um, and I was asked to audition for a show called The Liberians, where I was meant to be the Casanova. And I'm an awkward man at the best of times when it comes to romance and women. And I was there screen testing where I had to be this lothario with rugged shoulders and lean in and try to seduce this woman. Um, And I was practising with a casting agent when the actual star actress, uh, her name escapes me right now, she's like the television equivalent of Nicole Kidman, and her husband, who actually directs the show, stepped in and I had to audition for them. And every time I tried to be sexy, I was as sexy as Tony Abbott. It was just... (laughs) As sexy as Tony ever in his budgie smugglers. <laughs> and I never heard back from them again. But, but, but the point is, every time, uh, it's about embracing your fears. It's like, um, and I, I talk a lot about that, about I, about embracing your fears. I wanted to embrace my fears around my own body image and body insecurity, so I became a massage therapist. I wanted to embrace my fears about, you know, getting up there and showing my story, so I became a stand-up comedian. <laughs> I, seriously, so I think the importance is... T- embrace your fears. Fear is the very thing that we desire and want, but we think we're not good enough to have. If you think about it, right? Like, uh, how often are the great things in your life, have, ever, have they ever come from a place of comfort and a place of certainty? Whether it's love, whether it's achievements, whether it's, it's, it's a, your spiritual journey, they never come from a place of comfort. And we're told to be comfortable when actually what we need to do is be afraid and embrace that fear and run to that fear because that fear is us fighting with our own sense of self. And sense of self-esteem—that is, I don't deserve that love. I don't deserve that success. I don't deserve to explore that part of me. And what I talk about in a book is about every time I've just embraced that fear, and most of the times I've fallen flat on my face. But then other times I've done things like create the ASRC at 28, um, doing something that people thought was ridiculous and impossible. So, well,
0: well tell us how you did that because that is a
1: yeah. Well, okay, well, that was again a moment in time, in seizing a moment. I had been uh, teaching at a university; students to be welfare workers. I had been on the side providing counselling to people in the psychiatric system, and a nun named Sister Bernadette at the Red Cross asked me if I could see a couple of young men who had been tortured in the country. I started counselling these young men who were my age, who had been horribly tortured by their own government simply for doing the very things I did in my own city of Melbourne. And I started to learn that people seeking asylum in Melbourne had nowhere to go and get food. I was in teaching at this TAFE, and my students had to do a practical class project. One Friday a week for eight weeks in a community charity. They come back to me going, no one will take us on. Is there anything else we can do? My dear friend Pablo, who was running an organic grocery store, said, I have a little shop about the size of this stage, as in this stage, not this, um, and said, look, you can have it if you want it. And I said to my students, what do you think about us starting a charity as our TAFE class project? They thought I was joking. And my students were kids that people didn't have much expectation of. Newly arrived migrants and refugees, lots of single parents, a lot of women returning to school after 20 or 30 years after having kids. And once they got over the fact that I wasn't joking, uh, we came up with the name. I broke them up into little groups. One group painted the little shop front and built the shelves. One group went out and begged for food. And eight weeks later from that day, the ASRC was born on the 8th of June 2001. Um, with literally a tiny shop front, some fruit and veg from my friend Pablo, a couple hundred dollars in my back pocket, and some furniture that I borrowed from my mum. And that's how we started. And I started it with a very simple thing that is, I have no idea what I'm doing, I'm never going to take federal government funding, we're going to be fearless and independent, and we're going to turn no one away. 18 years this June, we've now helped 21,000 people. We're the largest refugee organisation in Australia. We're helping 5,000 people right now. Uh, we last year, um, thank you. we last year, our caseworkers along with our legal medical partners got eighty percent of all the children off in the room through our direct work, and then played a critical role in getting a medevac bill passed just in February. All this from taking a risk, backing myself, and just following my heart. And I saw a need, and I saw a crisis, and I thought I need to do something about this. This is immoral that people are going hungry in my great city simply for seeking asylum. And I've got to do something about it. And that's been my ethos since I was 18 years old. If there is something that is wrong and unjust, I have a moral obligation to do something about it. And we all have the power to do something about it. And that's very much the, the book is very much, it talks about a lot of dark topics, but the theme throughout it all is one that is actually really hopeful I hope for the reader, because that was the intention. That is, in that darkness, so does the, the light rise, the possibility rise, the hope rise. Now, the harder it gets, the greater the opportunity to do good, to make a difference, to have an impact, to, to find a way through despite all the odds. And the ASSC is a beautiful little microcosm of the greatness of this nation and the kindness of most Australians when we appeal to the best in us and we lead with the best in us and we see the best in us. And when we do that, we're actually unstoppable. And that's really what the ASOS is about. It's it's about the country we are and can be, uh, and what we need to be led to be far more often than we are right now.
0: Show them your um. Oh show tats- tattoo. Oh my tattoo.
1: So I have a tattoo. That's
0: passion in Greek.
1: Yeah, pathos. Uh, and I look at that because I always think about the importance of living life with passion. And you should always live life with with passion, with purpose.
0: Just want to read a little paragraph here from your book. All my life, people have told me that I am naive for thinking that love is a triumphant force, that compassion can conquer anything, and that being vulnerable is power. So you obviously have had your critics and detractors telling you. Oh, I'm right, a very hated person. Boy. Yes.
1: <laughs> look, look. Ever since a young age, whether it was you know being told I was a dirty world, or being told by my social work supervisor, Con will be fine once he gets rid of the fire in the belly, whether it's the thousands of, pe- thousands of people who send me abusive and threatening messages every year, um, whether it's people that tell me that, you know, beggars can't be choosers, you can't be this way. A, look, a lot of what I talk about in the book, and I, and I share a lot about myself very honestly, is because there will always be a room full like this of people telling us what we can't be, and who we can't be, and what is not possible. It's so easy to tear down people and to tear down things than it is to build us up, yeah? And so many of us have such dreams and passions and hopes inside of us. And often we're so scared of failing and disappointing, and we're so scared of being vulnerable and open that we actually never live our fulfilled life. And I talk a lot about the worst thing we can do in our our lives is to not have expectations of ourselves. And we almost I talk about it like almost like a, like a soundtrack that early on we have this beautiful clean vinyl record, and then every time a trauma happens, that, that a track gets scratched and it gets scratched deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And so every time we find ourselves in a moment of adversity or uncertainty, we put on the record and we play the same scratch track, which is "I'm going to stuff up again, I'm going to get my heart broken again, I'm going to get rejected again, I'm going to disappoint again." And what starts happening is we stop actually seeing the potential to tell a new story and to have new hope and new expectation. And in fact, we just keep playing out our grief and we keep punishing ourselves rather than forgiving ourselves. And so I, I share a lot that is make, was quite uncomfortable sharing in a book, but I do so because so much of what is killing us, whether it's the seven men a day who take their lives in this country through suicide, the woman a week who is killed by male violence in this country, the extraordinary levels of mental ill health in this country and destitution and trauma is a culture of silence and shaming. And until we start actually picking away at that and going, why are we ashamed to talk about our grief and our sadness and our despair? And why are we shaming people and punishing people when they do so? And I talk a lot about masculinity because a lot of my life has been learning how to unlearn how to be a man, because the greatest threat outside of climate change to civilization is men. Because, we're, quite seriously, because we are raised to be so dysfunctional and toxic, both to ourselves and to the women and children in our lives. And men are inherently beautiful and good, but we're socialised to be very different to that. So a lot of the conversation in my book is about, well, how do we learn a different way of being?
0: But how do you maintain your sense of optimism and hope and belief in humanity when you're getting trolled on Twitter or you're getting the hate mail or, or the hate messages, how, how yeah. do you deal with that? Well, I
1: suppose one, if if I wasn't, I'd I realise I wasn't doing anything right. Like, I, True. <laughs> look, I, I think it's been interesting because when I when I look at all that hate that I get, and it's um, you know, so when I'm speaking up for women's rights, it's you know, um, that people use the c word, they go, you're such a c, and I'm like. So you're saying I have warmth and depth. I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Thank you very much. Uh, if I'm speaking out for you know uh, Muslim people, people will send me these awful, like, real pictures of decapitated heads. If I'm speaking out for refugees, they'll say I'm a terrorist lover. And I often sit to try and engage people and going, what's going on underneath all of this? Because it's typically white men, typically, who typically hate women, refugees, indigenous people, Muslims and Jewish people. And don't believe in climate change. They actually share all those traits consistently. <laughs> but because I speak out on all those issues, I got to you again. It's like, uh, and then, but, what, but we can also be dismissive when at the heart of that, there's actually something really sad and heartbreaking happening there, which is there, are, there is a group in our community that is genuinely feeling disempowered and dislocated. But what they've been told by, by, you know, not just from 1988 when it's John Howard with Asians are invading, but from 1788 in this country. Is that it is the other that is to blame for your, your spot in life. And so there are real issues for working class people and working class men around the jobs I once had have been automated. Um, the, the safety that I once had has, you know, um, is no longer being provided. Um, but the enemy is actually multinationals and, and governments and greedy corporations. It's actually not migrants and refugees who are creating jobs and who are strengthening this community. And so at the heart of that is this thing about there's this real anger. And also this anger because men have been so used to being so privileged that suddenly when you know, through important things like the Me Too movement where women are suddenly getting a voice to be able to speak up, men are feeling persecuted because when, when you're used to privilege without accountability, the minute anyone else tries to share in that, suddenly these men are like, I'm being persecuted and left behind, when in fact others are just saying, hey, I matter too. But we don't raise men like that. We raise men and we raise white people and we raise white men especially. Raise men like me to think that we, we are meant to be in a dominant position and in control. And suddenly, when things start to shift, we get this anger.
0: So, just getting um, back to your point about you are willing to take risks, one of the risks you took was you went to Manus. Yeah. And yeah. what you found there, I think you described as a living graveyard, yeah. which is a very bleak. Right.
1: Yeah, so we, I paid a people smuggler, uh, I was promised, uh, so got into Papua New Guinea, pretended I was there on a holiday, uh, got to East Larangal, which is a little town near Manus Island, paid a smuggler, paid a people smuggler, very proudly <laughs> say that, paid a people smuggler, was told that I was going to get a big boat, which would have a family on it, so it looked like we are just going on an evening cruise. Turn up at the dock with a couple with my colleagues, Jana and Tash, and we find a tiny little dinghy where I thought my body weight alone would tip it over. You know, you listen to the smuggler. They tell you something. There's no other way in, so you get on the boat, thinking the boat's not even going to carry us in the pitch darkness. Our concern was that the Navy would pick us up, and I wasn't worried about getting arrested because the worry was we would never get there, and we, we, we make it to Manus. The men are left there. This is at the time where the government has abandoned the camp, cut off all water, electricity, and food. And it's the men there waiting on the sand with their torches, letting us know it's safe to land. Go in there. And what I saw was a living graveyard. To sit there and watch a detention centre run by the Australian government, where men were digging water out of wells, and their bodies were covered in scabies everywhere because of the infections. To see men, I saw a little Rohingya man who had... Uh, heart problems, and had run out of his heart medicine. Another man with severe epilepsy and mental illness who was bedridden. That same man, five months later, killed himself, threw himself out of a car. And when we rang his his wife, um, who was in a refugee camp, to tell her to give our condolences, this was over a day later, she was like, what are you talking about? Because the Australian government hadn't even called her to tell her that her husband had died. And so she heard the news from us. And there I am watching men where they cut off the water, the food, the electricity. And they thought they were going to break these men, that these men would turn against themselves. And what was quite extraordinary was the men didn't want to leave there because for the first time in five years, they had some small sense of agency. Like to actually watch the men lock the gates behind them. Because finally they could control whatever food they had, they shared. Whatever water they had, they shared. They insisted on feeding us. Like these are people with no food, nothing. And they're like, please come and sit and have a cup of tea and have some biscuits. And I'm sitting there with these people going, these are the sort of people our country needs. Why are they sitting here rotting away? Why are we torturing them? And a sense of despair, it is worse than what you think it is. And the fact we still have 950 people on Madison in the room, we'll get them off. We will get them off this year. We are determined (laughs) to. We've, we've gotten close to 400 people off throughout through the work of the ASSC with our partners so far. But I sat there and thought, why? Why are these people here? And I was so distressed afterwards. When I, when I left, you know, saying goodbye to people like Aziz and to Berrouz and sitting there, who are the true heroes of this story. They're actually the heroes, not people like me. And I said, why are these men being left to slowly fall apart and disintegrate? And how is my government leaving these men there to perish? And this is what is so distressing, and we saw this with the medivac, like this fear campaign, this hysteria, which they've had to back off on just because of Christchurch at the moment. This constant demonization of innocent people that have been found to be refugees that we have a moral duty to, pr- to protect. Scott Morrison right now has spent $185 million on a press conference. He's got 150 guards on Christmas Island guarding no one. $185 million. I know what that could do for, for example, your local schools and hospitals, yeah? It's just, it's obscene. It's not just obscene, the billions that have been spent, the dozen lives that have been lost, the hundreds of people have been broken, but it's obscene because of what it does to the heart of this nation, the stain that it leaves, the fear that it engenders, the hate that it engenders, to teach us to be afraid, to teach us to be cruel, to be selfish, to fear the other. That's the great damage that's been done. And, and, I, and I think more and more Australians are sick of it. I think more and more Australians are ashamed of it. And we saw that when we passed the Medivac bill, where even after we got kids off, people were like, well, why are the adults still there? Why I are they left behind? You, Con,
0: what happens to the children who come off Nauru? Where do they go? And where do the people who come off Nauru or Manus end up? Yeah, very, are they in very other qu- detention centres yeah. here? Well,
1: or? Very quickly... We work with many of the families that are from the Rue at the ACSC in Melbourne. They come into what's called community detention. So they start off uh, in hospitals, like without going too graphic. The work our team was doing last year were on the phones with mums and dads. Uh, I apologise for a little bit of this, but I just need to paint a little bit of a picture. So there's the mum on the phone going, my seven-year-old is pulling up their hair. My nine-year-old has stopped talking. My eight-year-old has cut their face with glass. My 10-year-old is trying to hang themselves with a power cord. My two-year-old won't stop wetting their bed. My six-month-old won't, won't eat. Six-month-old. That was the youngest we had to go to court for, six months old. We had to go to court for a two-year-old, a seven-year-old. These children had become comatose. And as an uncle to a three-year-old and a one-year-old who are are just like, you know, just these little angels who get the best of everything. I'm trying to imagine, for those out there who are parents or grandparents, to think about your children or grandkids not eating or sleeping and trying to actively take their lives. And they're this tall, this tall. How disturbing that is. They're brought here, they're put first into psychiatric and medical care, and then they're technically in what's called community detention, where they're in the community, they have a basic safety net and basic health care, But they have no visa and they're not allowed to work. Last, if I go back just over a year ago, the government, Peter Dutton there were 410 here originally. There's now over 900 people that have been brought here, not by choice. Like when Scott Morrison's like, I've brought the kids over, over 80% of them, we dragged him through the courts. He brought no one over virtually, virtually no one over. And then the kids off in the room movement got the last 20% over, which was incredible community effort as well. But within all, of, within all of this was the, uh, the lie that they were helping bring people here when in reality they weren't. So I go back 18 months ago, Peter Dunham comes out going, these 410 that are here, I'm giving you three months and then I'm cutting you off all income support and all health care. And you're going to be on his final departure visa. I'm going to send you all back. So I talk to my board and go, look, I know we don't have the money, we don't have the resources, but can I come out Monday and say we're going to take them all? So the board goes, okay. I come out Monday and go, okay, Peter Dunham, you're going to cut these 410 people out? We'll house and feed and care for every single one of them. And then I went out to the community and said, would anyone help us? People donated $800,000 in 14 days. And then the premier came out and said also, for this one particular group, we're not going to let them starve. And this was, again, a perfect example where the government tries to crush people. And then you come out and do what is right, not knowing if you're going to be able to find the money or the resources. But you know there's a moral urgency to do what is right and you just do it. And the bastard had to back down. And I've met Peter Dutton. I should just say to you, I met him last year. I spent an hour with him because at the moment he's cutting every family seeking asylum in Australia off all income support. The only exception being if your child's five and under. So thousands of families being left in absolute poverty that we're housing and feeding right now. And when I met him and I begged to him and he sat there and said, well, I'll deal with responsible refugee advocates. While he looked at me. Uh, as in you're not one of them and he sat there and said "Uh, when this apocalypse that you think is coming i'll review my decision and i looked at him and realized oh my goodness you are actually worse and more evil and more bereft of compassion in person than you are on television which is quite the extraordinary thing what was really interesting was watching him and realizing he honestly did not care and he actually was getting pleasure from this he was actually, I was looking at him going, because, you know, you built someone up and then you're there with no cameras, no, me mean, some of the other refugee sector leaders, I'm looking at him going, you actually don't care. You are actually enjoying this. You are actually getting off on breaking these people. And so the challenge when you've got such leadership or the absence of such leadership is what are we going to do? And that's why it's so important that we resist and we respond and we step into the breach when a government fails to say, how you keep going after 18 years of doing this is sheer necessity. You, you actually cannot give up. You cannot despair. And it doesn't mean every day I feel like I'm failing. Every day I don't feel like I'm doing enough. Every week I'm exhausted. But I keep remembering it's not about me and it's the refugees that actually got the real struggle. I'm the privileged and the lucky one. Um, and the importance is when we do whatever we're passionate about is that we surround ourselves with other people that share our values and we realize we're doing our best and that the fight is always out there. It's not wherever we are ourselves because when we feel so overwhelmed and helpless at times, we turn on each other. And it's so important to remember we are doing the best we can in a David and Goliath battle, but David will triumph because David is on the right side of history and we are on the side of truth and history is actually happening now. So it's always about what are the decisions and choices we want to make? It's like I was looking at two photos, one of Jacinda Ardern hugging a Muslim woman after the Christchurch terror attack. And one was a Scott Morrison's picture of his boat statue on his desk. I stopped these. And I was looking at both these photos and going, which person do I want to be? Which country do we want to be? The one of Jacinda or the one of Scott? Anyone want to be the one of Scott? Anyone? Maybe. We have moral choices to make, yes? No
0: one. Good. Yes. good. (laughs) Yeah, you're all right. Um, Well, you do say, Con, that... It's not enough for us, the rest of us, to wring our hands and go, oh, this is terrible. Um, we must speak out and we must be um, radical in a way. You say oppression thrives on our collective silence, apathy or indifferent indifference, but it cannot prosper when we refuse to cooperate. So you're kind of advocating a bit of resistance there or maybe even illegal activities that will we'll change things.
1: Well I, well, I think unjust laws are meant to be defied. So, I mean, that's what Martin Luther King did. That's what Gandhi did. That's what Mandela did. But I think most importantly, and in the book I give more than 100 practical examples because I didn't just want to say, you can change the world, and people are like, well, where do I start? So there's literally over 100 practical ways you could start. But what I was trying to get at is we live in a time where it's almost like an outrage Olympics where we always are feeling constantly outraged. But unless we collectively do something with that outrage, it actually fatigues us and we turn off. We actually switch off. We're like, I'm just fatigued by this. I'm tired of feeling helpless. I can't bear to hear once again that climate change is irreversible, the latest thing that's happening to poor people, the fact they won't raise the rate on Newstart Allowance or another woman's been killed by male violence or another death in detention or uh, the close the gap isn't actually happening or whatever, we can despair. And what I keep trying to encourage people to do is go... Change starts with us. And I always encourage you to start in your own community. Pick any issue that you care about. And all of us have something to offer, whether it's volunteering at your local food bank, mentoring a child in an after-schools program, helping out in your local citizens' advice bureau, writing a letter to your local MP demanding action on climate change or fairer refugee policy. Helping out you know, on any issue that matters to you, whether it's young people, women, indigenous people, the environment, the arts, that every one of us has a talent for good and has within us a reserve of kindness. And it doesn't require any expertise. People often sit there going, but I feel awkward and anxious about taking on this issue because I'm not an expert. And I sit there and say, do you think of who our politicians are? <laughs> They're not experts in anything. They're incompetent fools. But I sit there and go, but do you have compassion? Yes. And you have an open mind, yes. And you have a beating heart, yes. Well, then you're an expert in humanity. And what I want you to do is I want you to take those tools and go and give them to others. That's it. That's it. All of us can be part of being on the side of good. And the most important thing is that we are active in our democracy, not just at election time, which is really important, but what are we doing next weekend? And where are you giving your time? If you've got in-kind support, if you've got a few dollars to spare, it doesn't mean it's got to be money. But there's something in you that you've got that's worth giving. And are you giving it to anyone else
0: to so make this world better? So saying my three very uncomfortable phone calls to Peter Dutton's office were not in vain.
1: No, well, Even one of them got
0: abused by the guy answering. Well, one the of, of the
1: really interesting things when we got the Medivac bill through, which was the ASAC and just a couple of other organizations, literally 10 of us, and we were able to convince the crossbench and amazing people like Dr. Karen Phelps, you know, incredible. And when we were, she was amazing, when we were sitting there and talking to people like her and Julia Banks and Darren Hinch and Nick McKee, all of them, we were sitting there face-to-face with all of them, they kept telling us that what convinced them to keep going were the thousands and thousands collectively phone calls and letters that they got. And that's actually what convinced them to be going. So whenever you're sitting there going, does my phone call really make a difference? Does that letter really make a difference? I can't stress to you how much they kept saying, I didn't realize how much my my local area wanted me to act on this until I got 50 letters, 100 letters, 200 phone calls. We had them saying, could you please stop telling people to call us? We can't keep up. But that's what they remember. Because if you are not vocal and active, why are those issues ever going to be taken up by your local member? Unless you demand better from them, unless we demand better from our political leaders, why are they going to be any better?
0: Well, I should finish, and then I'll throw open to the floor um, by asking you, Con. it is a political question, but do you believe a change of government at federal level will make any difference for immigration and refugee policy? Look,
1: a couple of things. One, I make a very careful point of my organisation endorsing no political party. Because this issue needs to be seen as not political or not religious. So we don't, we're, we're agnostic in that way because it's a humanitarian issue. We've been working hard lobbying the ALP and there are some important differences, yes, in terms of a change of government would see if they follow through with like what they're committing to an intertemporary visas and safe haven enterprise visas and bringing back the right to work and healthcare. So they're important changes. Um, but we still have... Where we are has been because of bipartisanship, yeah? We've only got to where we are with Manus and Nauru because we've had two decades of bipartisanship. And neither party is committing to ending towbacks. Neither party is committing to closing offshore detention centers. And neither party is really committing to meaningfully increasing our refugee intake to a level that is is commensurate with uh, the wealth of this country. So yes, a change of government would bring important and positive progress. um, And that's come through all the collective community pressure and the lobbying we've been doing. But we need to go further. We actually need... I often sit and say to the LP, I go, you actually have policies that are in some ways, in some areas, significantly different. But, you know, no one would know because you never speak out about it because they're terrified of doing so. But that's problematic, isn't it? Because if they're not speaking out about it, not publicly, how are we going to shift the narrative? Because what I worry about is we get these changes for saying under an LP government. This government falls out of favour and everything starts back up again. Now, you wouldn't imagine that happening around marriage equality because we've actually had a seismic shift in community attitudes. But the area that I work in feels so fragile because we have no major party willing to embed in the very cultural and valued DNA of this country that a great nation does not torture refugees, that a great nation does not indefinitely lock up children until the point that they become comatose, that a great nation doesn't sit there and demonise people that come across our boundless shores in need of our protection. Now, I've yet to see anyone that's going to be our next Prime Minister show the courage or leadership to tell me that's what's going to happen come the next political term. Have you?
0: But what about the argument that you have to deter people smugglers because refugees were drowning at sea? What do you say to that?
1: One of the greatest lies that we've been told is the idea that this is about saving lives. It's the greatest lie we've been told because one of my dear friends, well, well, extraordinary for me was the late um, Mr. Malcolm Fraser and we became friends and he was a patron of the ACC. Tammy remains a patron of the ACC and when I used to speak to Mr. Fraser, i go, Mr. Fraser, did you face these challenges? He goes, well, I was there and he goes, yes, mid-1970s, the entire Asian region was imploding and boats started coming and I was told to lock them up and to build detention centres and he goes, I refused to. And instead, I built a regional process, and I resettled 250,000 people. The most people that came in any one year were 811 by boat. So the great lie now is that this is about saving lives at sea. Well, you can't pretend to care about those who die at sea when you don't give us stuff about those who don't. So if you give us stuff about those who die at sea, why are you torturing a thousand refugees on Manus and Nauru? And quite honestly, the only reason people get onto boats. Because I've worked with lots of survivors of the civics and on and on we go. I've sat across from fathers who have lost five of their daughters and their wife on a leaky boat. yeah, And trying to comfort them. The only reason they get onto boats is because we refuse to provide safe passage. When we are a country that has cut a third of our refugee intake at a record time of people needing protection, when we are a country that has reduced our investment in regional frameworks, when we are a country that has banned the resettlement of UNHCR assessed refugees from Indonesia since 2014, we are taking the piss. And that is that our government is lying to you, that this is not about deterrence. And people are not a menace in the root because of deterrence. They are there to appeal to One Nation voters, to sit there and say, we will do anything in the name of your fear and your ignorance and your bigotry to stay in power. And we will pander to that and exploit that to stay in power because we actually stand for nothing, because we actually have no legacy, because we actually lead on nothing except fear. So this is the great lie. No one wants people getting onto boats. And the only reason that that industry exists is because we provide no safe passage, don't take our fair share, and provide no safe process. And so this has been one of the great lies told to us.
0: So we've just got some time left for questions from you. There is a microphone there for you. So if you have a question for Con, please just walk up to the microphone.
2: um hi i've got a present for you as well thank you but um the business with paladin and construct the contracts on um uh, manus and nauru to me it seems has immigration policy morphed into foreign policy and that is that that money we know that money isn't being spent on refugees it's going into certain pockets but as that becomes australia's a way of um, promulgating australia's foreign policy which is basically big boys club here's the money you guys do what we want you to do here's your present
1: sure look it's deeply disturbing when you see a company get a half a billion dollar contract whose whose office address was a beach shack without a phone even running like the great Barrier reef scandal that's what happened extraordinary uh with paladin it's extraordinary scandal think about how disturbing it is that we've spent 16 billion dollars 16 billion dollars That's three times UNHCR's global refugee budget to help 60 million people. We've spent three times that in six years to lock up a couple of thousand people in offshore detention centres. And when I went to Manus, and there I was in East Laryngo, where they don't even have basic infrastructure, I'm like, where has the $5 billion that's been spent on Papua New Guinea gone? And it's gone into the hands of multinationals. And very much, you look at the foreign aid, which is the lowest in recorded Australian history, we are misusing our foreign aid, and we are misusing our money very much to shape our influence in our region. It's deeply disturbed. Uh, next question.
2: Uh, this one is not actually a question, Con. It is an answer. You have talked about in the first part of this presentation of fear being um, an opening to become a challenge. I'm suggesting that we take the fear promulgated by our government and we turn that into a challenge. We need to get to know these people because you banish fear with knowledge. And if we all make it our job, every one of us to get to know a Muslim or a Muslim family or more, an indigenous person or their family or their clan, Their mob. No, not terrorists. Don't want to get to know terrorists. Um, But potential terrorists, get to know them, make them feel welcome. Maybe they won't become terrorists. And we won't be afraid anymore because we'll find they've got red blood just like us. Mm. They they bleed like we do. They hurt. They have heartache. They have dreams and hopes.
1: I agree. Look, I agree. A couple of weeks ago in response... Thank you. In response to Christchurch, we opened up our centre and took donations of food for the local halal food bank. Had the local mosque come, the local Islamic council come. Had condolences books that were going back to Christchurch. And it's always about let us build relationships. We had a press service at work. It's always about build relationships, and it's and that's the beauty that once we go out, there fear relies on the unknown, yeah. And the minute you're out there, just like when I do volunteer work outside of work in indigenous communities, as an example and the honour of being on country with First Nations people, and you feel so welcomed and safe, it's beautiful. Or when I'm out in Muslim communities, I feel the same. The importance of us connecting back to our communities, and that's the wonderful thing of volunteering. That's the beautiful thing. And again, I keep going back to this thing, which is most Australians are good, most Australians are compassionate, and most Australians have big hearts, and we just need to keep leading by example and showing that through how we give our time and energy and who we vote for and how we give our voice. Next question, please. Yeah, my who's Phil from Sydney. I'm glad I'm here. I was born and raised here. In, um, one of the most disturbing things I've observed has been the growth over the last 10 or 15 years of the group I like to call the loony right in the Liberal Party, yeah. which is actually destroying the Liberal Party at the moment because centre, most of the Liberal voters are centre people yeah. and they're looking for alternatives because you've got Fredlin and Abbott and Button yeah. and those loonies yeah. up there. Where is that coming from? Is that being funded by certain industrial interests from Western Australia or? Look, I, look, I, it's, it's, look, I think everyone, it's quite interesting is it because the Liberal Party of old was small l liberal and at the heart of it was being socially progressive or having a, a compassionate heart while maybe having more austere economic policies. Yeah, uh, And what's really interesting is how the Liberal Party has been hijacked by the hard right, by the Erica Betzes, the Abbots, um, the Dutton's, the fact that Dutton with a 4% popularity rating thought he was gonna become the next Prime Minister and how close we got. It's really troubling, isn't it? <laughs> and and the fact that they are so hostile to women, um, and the fact that they are so unrepresentative of the community, um, means they're in for a rude awakening, I think, at the it's next going to election. Be funded by somebody. I'm sure, sure, look, like, I, you know. I can't answer that part, but I think I think there's a lot of people quite troubled with and I think a lot of liberal voters that are quite troubled with how has the party veered so far to the right? Like because it doesn't – and in a way, they're trying to mirror what's happening with the, the trumps of this war. But we're not that sort of country, are we? We're almost running out of time, so I think I might go to the I hope not. Yeah, one more last, question, one last question we've got right there.
3: Hello, and thank you for your presentation. I'm in uniform, but I'm actually a convener of the Great Lakes Rural Australians for Refugees Fantastic. group. All volunteers who try and debunk the myths and spread a bit, spread a bit of truth and compassion in our area. I just want to say, I understand why you're saying that you're not party political and yep. we try not to be. However, we watched both the major parties' platform yes. on refugees and in May we'll all get a chance to have our say. The ALP in their December conference showed a much softer line on refugees and people we know inside that say if we get in, or they want to get in, yep. um then we can bring the changes. But we're not going to go too public yet. I'm only putting that out there because I would hate to think that we couldn't have an alternative government with more
1: compassion. Thank Uh, you. Yeah, no. Look, and um, as I said before, the ALP is significantly better on refugee policy than the Liberal Party is. But I'm also not wanting to let the ALP off the hook. There's a lot of great people I'm working with, like the Jed Kearneys, Andrew Giles of this world. When we got the Medivac through, they were terrific. When we got them to commit to the LP conference to ending destitution. They were terrific. But I also need to take some responsibility for how we got here in the first place. And it's not okay for them to go to just wash their hands of that. That's all. And I'm trying to be fair and balanced because if I'm going to be hard on a Liberal Party, I've got to be equally objective when it comes to the Labor Party. That's all. I've got to be fair. I hate it when people... Just want it one way, and that's all. I'm just trying to be balanced. But yes, there's a difference. I appreciate that. And I encourage people to go to the ASRC website, and we've got our Change the Policy campaign and the Rule of Strange website where you can see the key policy asked in very practical ways how in your local area you can actually host forums, you can actually encourage your local members to come, and you can actually grill them on where do they stand on refugee issues. So I can't encourage you enough to do that, especially if you've got marginal seats. I couldn't encourage you enough to take control and to do that right now as well.
0: Thank you thank very you. much Con. So Just we'll we'll finish with uh, a quote from Con's book. There is no perfect, just a continuum of messiness that makes us human and beautiful and here's a beautiful human and let's thank him very much for being here today.
1: I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation from the 2019 Newcastle Writers Festival. Save the date for next year's festival, April 3 to
0: 5, and follow us on Facebook for regular updates.